Today is Pentecost Sunday. Praise God. Today we also come to the last of the seven I Am statements made by Jesus as recorded in the Gospel according to John. In this last statement, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Our text today will be John 15, verse 1, and 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit today, by the very Spirit you poured out 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ask, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us, illuminate your word, lead us and guide us into truth, for you are the spirit of truth. And Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, empower us and embolden us to be salt and light fearlessly in this dark world. That your name would be glorified in your church. We thank you that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We are your church. We shall and we have prevailed. In Jesus' name, amen. It's Pentecost Sunday, and I'm going to connect the I am statement of Jesus, I am the true vine, with the celebration of the day of Pentecost. There is a link between being a branch, abiding in the true vine, and the indwelling life of the Holy Spirit and power poured out into our hearts by God, by which we become both His children and His witnesses. The Feast of Pentecost is all about fruitfulness. It was called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23, 16. It is more commonly called the Feast of Weeks. It is called the Feast of Weeks because it came 50 days or seven weeks after first fruits following Passover. And from those 50 days following the Feast of First Fruits, we get the name Pentecost, which is a Greek word meaning 50. Thus, the day of Pentecost occurred 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, it was also 
at Pentecost, if you, if you count, when Israel came out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai and Moses meets God and God gives his word, his law to Israel, Pentecost is also the celebration of God giving his word to his people. So it is not accidental, it's not coincidental that the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Jesus, it was not just a celebration of the harvest. There was a harvest that day. It was a celebration of God giving his word. And how did God give his word at Pentecost? He did not give it to us on tablets of stone. He gave it to us by writing it on our hearts. He poured his spirit into our hearts. He poured his living word into our hearts. How does Christ dwell in us? How does the word who was with God and the word who was God and is God, how does that word, Jesus Christ, dwell in us? He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost is a celebration of a number of things, not the least of which being the celebration of God giving his word to his people. When the day of Pentecost had fully come as promised, God poured out his spirit on all flesh. The Holy Spirit would eventually be poured out on Jews and Gentiles alike, on all peoples of all nations, all tongues, and all tribes, even us here today. Pentecost was a pilgrim feast, meaning Jews from every nation were represented on that day God poured out his spirit because at a pilgrim feast, he commanded every male to appear before him in the name in which he, in the place in which he chose for his name to dwell forever. And that day it was in Jerusalem. It is still in Jerusalem, not a city in the Middle East, but the holy Jerusalem who will one day descend out of heaven. The holy Jerusalem that you and I are living stones making up that living holy city. And that day, Jews from every nation were represented when God poured out his spirit. In other words, the curse of Babel was reversed that day, and the church was empowered to be one royal and holy nation filling the earth. There are not 70 nations any longer, as we saw at Babel, as we saw at Pentecost. There is now one holy nation that God sees and that God recognizes. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? The record in Acts reveals a church once fearful, once cowardly, after the death of Jesus, now empowered, now emboldened to courageously proclaim the gospel of Christ. The difference was the power that came with the outpouring of the Spirit. The symbolism, the visual symbolism pictured here of tongues of fire appearing upon each one is not accidental either. It is a picture of Sinai, of flaming Sinai, of God on top of flaming Sinai, in, in flame, in fire, delivering His Word to His people. We are the recipients of that Word. And that flame and that fire doesn't dwell on a mountain, a physical mountain. It dwells in us, Mount Zion, the people of God. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. This is what Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 11. The same Spirit that raised up Christ is the same Spirit that filled and empowered the disciples of Jesus coming out of the upper room. There was such power that 3,000 men were saved that day. It was not man's power, but the power of God dwelling in them. The same power of God by the same Spirit of God is dwelling in you if you belong to Jesus. And that power in you is not dependent upon how you feel. It, it is dependent upon whether you are in Christ or not. And if you are in Christ, you can know for sure that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost, is in you. Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. A branch can only produce fruit as it is connected to and abiding in the vine. The life that flows through the branch originates in the vine. It is the life of the vine flowing through the branch that produces the fruit desired by the vine dresser. And who is the vine dresser? Jesus said, my father is the vine dresser. Jesus continued his discourse about the vine and the branches, saying, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples, John 15, 8. It is fruit that the Father desires. He desires fruit in every sense of the word. That fruit is to be made manifest in his people and in his kingdom. For his glory. That fruit our Father desires is produced by the Holy Spirit indwelling the people of God who are the branches abiding in the true vine who is Christ. It is the Spirit of God dwelling in us that is our life and our source of all fruitfulness. You're not producing fruit, He is producing fruit in you and through you. The fruit of the Spirit is what must be produced through us as we are the branches abiding in Christ, the true vine. The fruit of the Spirit must be made manifest in abundance if we are to see His kingdom come 
and his will be done on earth. How else will we see that happen? If there is not an abundance of fruit, if his people do not become fruitful, spiritually fruitful, we will not see his kingdom come. We will not see his will be done. It's not going to happen just because we wish it would happen. It doesn't work that way. Any more than a farmer is going to get a crop just because he wishes he could have a crop. Unless he plants one. Unless he works hard. Unless he does the things necessary to get a crop, he will not have a crop just because he wishes for one. And neither will you become spiritually fruitful just because you wish you were. You've got to do what is necessary for that spiritual fruit to be made manifest. And one of the most important things, one of the foundational things, is to learn how to read this word and to commit to read it and to hide it in your heart every day. It begins in our own lives, but must not stop there. We are commanded to disciple the nations. That means discipleship begins in our own heart and moves out from there. Just like the Great Commission was in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It begins in our own heart and moves out from there, touching all as it continues to the ends of the earth, from generation to generation. It's how we came to this place today. It's how we are in this room today today recounting and talking about the very events that took place 2,000 years ago. The fact that we're here is not accidental. It is providential, but it's not providential without the faithful obedience of God's people from day to day to week to month to year to generation to generation. Jesus is the true vine, and if you are a branch abiding in him, then you have his spirit dwelling in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you to fill you and to make you fruitful so that you will be witnesses to him. That's why the Holy Spirit was poured out, so that his church would receive power to be witnesses to him. That is what Jesus told his disciples when he instructed them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the words of Jesus. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That outpouring came on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ. And what did Jesus say? He said, you shall receive power and you shall be witnesses to me. Now, let me ask you a question. When you look at the church today, where is the power? Where is the witness to Christ? Those disciples Jesus spoke to that day, save one, died for their faith. And the only reason John was not killed for his witness is because God did not allow it. It wasn't for lack of trying on the part of those who hated him and hated Christ. Instead, they banished him to a remote prison 
island prison, and still God used him to change the world. It was from Patmos that John recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is our excuse today? Well, the plain truth is that we don't have one. We have no excuse today. We not only have everything those disciples coming out of the upper room have, we actually have more than they have. We have a complete canon of Scripture we call the Bible. We have the same Holy Spirit they had. We have much more time and experience than they had. We live in a world that is basically in many ways, and in many parts, already been conquered for Christ. And this is the problem. What has been conquered is now being retaken by the enemy. You are called to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and no longer being conformed to the world but giving witness to Christ through our life that is being transformed by His grace and His power. Being a witness means that our life will stand for something. Specifically, being a witness to Christ means our life stands for the truth of His gospel while it stands against all that opposes it. The first century church found itself preaching the gospel in a hostile environment, guess what? The 21st century church now finds itself preaching the gospel in a hostile environment. The church does not largely realize it yet, but it will sooner than later. It is time for the church at large and for Christ Fellowship Church to walk in the power it has received by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You're not lacking anything, except perhaps the comprehension, the understanding, or the will to walk in the power of the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, you have received power And you have been called to be witnesses to Christ in that power. It's time for pastors to lead the way. I can say this because I'm your pastor. Pastors should be standing up, not fearful of what man will say or think or do. Pray that the pastors of Christ Fellowship Church and the pastors of this community would lead by example in the boldness needed to be witnesses to Christ. It is not just pastors. You and every believer are called to be filled with His Spirit. You are called to be walking under the power and the control of the Spirit, not giving place to the world, not giving place to the devil, but giving yourself to God and giving a loud and clear witness to Christ in all of life. Your witness will require His power. Because your witness will not be without opposition. That world is gone. That America is long gone. We don't live in that world and we don't live in that America anymore. We're living in a culture today that is all about standing up for certain things 
especially those things the woke culture demands we stand for and demands that we support. At the very same time, if we stand up for the gospel and for Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the culture demands, even requires, that we be canceled and silenced by whatever means necessary, whether intimidation, legal action, and even threats of violence. The message of the kingdom and the truth of the gospel must be silenced. Our city will even pass 19-page ordinances in order to keep the local churches from having a Christmas parade free of drag queens dancing. It happened. The vote was passed Thursday night. In complete defiance of the community standards that the majority of the people here believe in. The message of the kingdom and the gospel of Christ have been deemed hate speech by those who currently police the culture. Those who preach and promote the truth are called haters and bigots publicly and privately. The virtue of love has been hijacked by the culture so that it is no longer virtuous but perverted. Love is love, is their battle cry. Now you are indoctrinated to love whoever you want in whatever way you want, and there are no bounds. What is called love no longer has boundaries. It certainly has no boundaries as defined in the Bible. The Bible is no longer considered a book proclaiming the God who is love. For many, the Bible is now considered a book more about hate than it is about love. That is especially true if there is any attempt to define sin from the teachings of the Bible. I hope you realize this. You must read the Bible in order to know what it says. And it seems even among Christians, there are far fewer who are reading it than should be. If we are trusting in the power of persuasive arguments or an apologetic based on man's reason, we are wasting our time. The only thing we may put our trust in is the power of God, working through the grace of God in the message of the gospel of Christ. It is not in the persuasiveness of man that God's power works. As Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. If you do not win men with the gospel, then you have not won men. You may convince men to believe in the God you profess to believe in, but convincing them to believe is not the same as the gospel in its power changing a heart converting a soul. Don't trust in your persuasive abilities. Don't trust in your good arguments. Don't trust that men will believe just because you do, because if they believe simply because you do, they're believing for the wrong reasons. If they believe because you believe, then you have just become their God. And when you fall, guess who's going to fall right along with them? With you, they will. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that must be preached. It is the gospel that must be presented. 
Because only the gospel has the power to save men. That being true, proclaiming the gospel of Christ is the most powerful and loving thing you can do. If we as the church truly love people, especially lost sinners, then there is nothing more loving we can do than make known the gospel of Christ. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Proclaiming the gospel is not only a nice thing to do, it is the most loving thing we can do. Speaking of being nice, if Christians would just be nice, that's what the world says, if you'd just be nice, you know, you could win a lot more people. Well, listen, God didn't tell us to win people by being nice. He told us to win people by commanding them to believe and pro proclaiming the gospel. I happen to think it's a very nice thing to do. Let me ask you a question. If you walked into someone's house and you walked up to their nice table all set for a meal and you turned it upside down making a huge mess, would your actions be considered nice? Well, obviously, no. Your actions would not be considered nice and neither would you, by the way. The conventional wisdom of man says nice people don't turn tables upside down even when they need to be turned upside down. The truth is there is no nice way to turn a table upside down. Just ask Jesus and the Pharisees. Consequently, there is no nice way to turn the world upside down either. Ask Paul and Silas and the Jews and the accusing mob sent after them in Thessalonica. Acts 17.6, listen to what they said about Paul and Silas and the church in that day. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren up to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The cry was, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Do you think the church today is seen as a church that is turning the world upside down? I don't either. Unfortunately, it does not because it is not. At least not yet. Even so, there is hope. Jesus promised he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Hope is never lost. Even with the battle raging and the warfare difficult, even as hopeless as it may look, we are never without hope because we are never without Christ and his gospel and his kingdom and his church will prevail because Jesus said it would. Will it prevail in our day? That's yet to be seen. But it will prevail, rest assured. And what you and what I do in our day, right here and right now, will largely determine whether it prevails in our lifetime or whether it will prevail in the next generation or how many generations following. What you do right now, in large part, will determine that. One of the greatest battles is one of perception. It's the perception that we are not being nice if we tell people who need to hear it the truth. Nice people, after all, don't say things like, you will go to hell if you do not repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. 
Nice people don't say things like that, don't you know? Some believe saying that is not nice. Not only is it not nice, it's not loving, they say. Yet that's exactly what Jesus said. Why are so many pastors, why are so many Christians unwilling to speak the truth so plainly? In short, because the perception has been adopted that says such things are not nice. We can think those things, we can silently pray those things, but to say such things out loud in public to people is just not a nice thing to do. Jesus was nice. We need to be more like Jesus. That's what the world tells us. Well, how nice was Jesus? True, we need to be like Jesus. And when we do become like Jesus, they will seek to kill us the same way they sought to kill Jesus. That's how nice he was. They murdered him. Do we murder nice people? Do, do good people murder nice people? No. But they murdered Jesus. Those who profess to be good and righteous murdered the Son of God. That's how nice, that's how loving he is. We can think those things, we can say those things to ourselves, but not publicly, not out loud. We need to be more like Jesus. In other words, we need to love the way Jesus loved. The day will come that they will seek to do to us what they did to Jesus if we do not win the culture and pull this nation back from the brink of God's judgment. God's judgment's already here. The question is, will it continue to increase, or will we see God pull his hand back because his church finally repents of her sin and seeks his face and turns from her wicked way so that God will hear from heaven and heal our land? It all hinges on the church. That's you and that's me. Until we stop fearing man and start fearing God, little will change. Telling men the truth is not only nice, it is loving and it is obedience to God. We also have this myth of neutrality and maintaining the status quo. If being nice motivates us to keep the truth to ourselves. Another motivating factor for silencing the truth in love is the myth of neutrality and maintaining the status quo. Churches like to put true things in their statements of faith, sometimes. They like their online presence to communicate the truths of the gospel, at least vaguely. Actually, preaching and teaching and walking out the truth publicly, though, may disrupt the status quo if we're not careful. Thus, the quest for neutrality by many evangelical churches. Let us be careful about what we say and what we do so that we do not depart the sinner and disrupt the status quo. You may think that I'm not being nice right now by what I'm saying. And you may be right. But I am being honest. And that actually is a loving thing to do. We need to be a people that stops hiding from the truth. 
that stops ignoring the truth because we don't like the way it sounds. So we just stick our fingers in our ears and we pretend like we don't hear. What determines the status quo? Well, that is largely determined by numbers. It is commonly understood in the world of church growth and seeker sensitivity that numbers rule. Numbers are not bad. In fact, they're very necessary. God named a whole book of the Bible after numbers. To a degree, all pastors and churches are driven by numbers. That is natural, but it can also be sinful. It's sinful when a pastor or a church allows consideration for numbers represented by bodies and budgets to dictate the church's stand for righteousness or against unrighteousness. Actually, all pastors I have ever engaged with in conversation would say they stand for righteousness. The real test, though, I have found, is not actually if they will stand for righteousness, but whether, whether they will stand against unrighteousness. Will pastors and churches today take a public, visible, and clear stand against sin and wickedness and the invasive darkness? That is the true test. And that is the true need of our day. I know from personal conversations with pastors, they and their boards or councils are too concerned about offending current church members or potential converts, a.k.a. it's about the numbers. As a result of this fear of man, they will not engage in activities or in groups actively opposing sin and wickedness, especially if they deem it as unpopular or politically motivated. Politically motivated can be as simple as being perceived as controversial. Why? Because controversy rocks the status quo. Do you know why they murdered Jesus? Because he was too controversial. Because he was rocking the status quo that had long been established by the religious leaders of his day. And the easiest solution was to just get rid of him, be done with him. Little did they know that they were playing right into his plan and purpose. There are pastors, there are Christians, there are churches today who will not join the greater fight against sin and wickedness in our city because they see it as too polarizing, too controversial, too political. Did you get that? I want you to get this. There are pastors who will not join the fight against sin because it is too polarizing, too controversial, too political. What is? Not sin, the fight against sin. I want you to get this. The fight against sin, not sin itself, is too polarizing, too controversial, and too political. That's not only sad, that is sinful. Christians will find out sooner or later that they cannot run, they cannot hide, they cannot escape the fight in what is falsely believed a politically neutral church. 
There is no such thing as a politically neutral church or a politically neutral Christian. If you belong to Jesus, there is no such thing as neutrality. If you do not belong to Jesus, guess what? There is no such thing as neutrality. Listen to these words spoken by Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Does that sound like neutrality? No, it does not. And it is not. There's nothing about that statement that promotes neutrality. Notice how Jesus presents this, or actually, notice how he does not present it. Listen to what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, he who opposes me is against me. He said, he who is not with me is against me. Well, I'm just going to stay in my prayer closet and be neutral. I'm just praying for all you guys that God's love would just prevail in everything. Sorry, but you are opposing Jesus when you do that because you're not out with him. He who is not with me is against me. Neither did he say, he who scatters, scatters abroad. He said, he who does not gather with me, scatters. In other words, it, 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 if we remain holed up in our neutral churches, Jesus indicates that we are actually actively against him. And if we are not actively gathering with him, if we're not actively gathering and with him, then we are actively scattering abroad. What does that mean? It means neutrality is a myth. According to Jesus, neutrality is actually opposition to his work. The church's excuse for neutrality is not only a myth, it is sin. This has been proven out in history as men sit by and do nothing. Christians trying to hold a place of neutrality by not engaging the culture are trying to appeal to or hide from man, all the while opposing God. There is no neutrality. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. If there are true theological differences, and I recognize that there are, then it would be fair to say at the very least that warrants a healthy, honest conversation to find common ground on how we can all engage to be salt and light and push back the darkness immersing our land. If we, if we do not all have to engage in the same way. When we go to the pride events, we tell people, this may not be for you. There may be a different way for you to engage, but you've got to engage. You've got to have the courage to stand up for the truth, speak the truth, no matter who it offends, no matter how hard they cancel you. You've got to do this. We all have to engage courageously, that means there can be no neutrality in our opposition to sin and wickedness inside or outside the church. We must speak his truth because we are all called to be martyrs. When we hear the word martyr, what do you think of? You think of dead Christians is what you think of. 
That is not incorrect, but it is also an incomplete picture of what the word martyr means. The word martyr means witness. That's why every week we pray that God would make us faithful martyrs even unto death. We're not praying that you'll get killed for your faith. We're praying that you'll be so faithful in standing for your faith that should it come to that, you would choose death over denying your faith. The word martyr is simply a witness. Every Christian is called to be a faithful martyr to Christ, even unto death. In a sense, every martyr is dead. For we are crucified with Christ as a new creation that has been raised up in his life. Every martyr must be conformed to his death. And if we are, we will hold our life in its proper place, in its proper way. Consider the words of a Christian martyr. Uh, Joshua sent this video, and I watched it, and I was blown away, and I was moved. Um, and I had never heard of the White Rose Resistance. Anybody else ever heard of it before? I'd never heard of it. There is a Christian martyr named Sophie Scholl. Sophie and her brother, Hans Scholl, led what was called the White Rose Resistance. It was a small collective of Christian students who secretly wrote and distributed leaflets all around Germany criticizing the Nazis and inspiring others to resist them. The day Sophie was arrested, her and her brother had a meeting scheduled with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but neither, neither one of them made the meeting that day. Sophie was a German activist who opposed the Nazis in the Holocaust. Listen to her words and let them challenge us today. And I quote, the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature. Those who live small, make small, die small. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion, because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine, sunny day, and I have to go. 
But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Close quote. Sophie Scholl. At the age of 21, on February 22, 1943, she and her brother was beheaded by the Nazis for distributing literature across Germany, calling for the German people to stand up and resist the evil that had taken hold of their land. And you know how it took hold? Because no one would stand up and resist it. That's why. My father fought in that war for the world. This is not ancient history. My father fought in that war. My children's grandfather fought in that war. Those things were happening just 80 short years ago. Sophie Scholl was beheaded by a guillotine 80 years ago. That's not a long time. Do we really think something like that can never happen again? If you do, then you do not know history and you do not know what's happening in your world right now. People are murdered every day for their faith, for standing up for Christ and His gospel of salvation. To any Christian and to Christ Fellowship Church, hear me well. There is no more politically motivated or politically charged declaration than Jesus is Lord. It is a dangerous declaration, not for those following the king, but for all opposing him. You don't have a reason to fear Jesus is Lord. But those opposing him better be fearful because they will stand before that Lord of Lords and that King of Kings one day and they will give an account to him. And if they have not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, then they will pay the penalty for their sin and they will pay it throughout all eternity. The cry, Jesus is Lord, shakes hell. May it also shake his church from her slumber. Jesus is Lord. May his church rise up, a glorious church, ready to live and even ready to die for his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please stand for your charge. Today is Pentecost Sunday. You are a Christian. You've not received a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You are no longer in bondage to fear. You have received the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You are a Christian a branch in the true vine who is Christ, live like it. You have received power 
the same power from the same spirit that emboldened a fearful church to come out of its closet and proclaim the gospel of salvation without fear. Christian, live like you have that power because in Christ you do. You are not called to be nice. You are called to love. Christian, don't seek to be guilted into or simply being nice. Seek to love like Jesus. And when you do, expect men to hate you the same way they hated Jesus. You will never be neutral. It is a place that does not exist in this world. If you seek neutrality, especially in areas of controversy like the gospel of the kingdom, you must repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and become obedient and courageous in your witness. You are called a martyr. You may never be killed for your faith. I pray you will not be. But there are worse fates than death, like standing and living for nothing greater than yourself. Make no mistake, you are called to die. Take up your cross and die daily and follow Jesus boldly, courageously, and faithfully. Find his joy in the midst of the battle. Do not remain silent. Speak and live the truth boldly. In matters of righteousness, do not worry about what others think or say about you. Be a faithful martyr to your family and your friends and encourage them to be the same. Show people it is right to stop being silent. It is right to stop being uninformed. It is right and necessary to stop being apathetic and to stop being intimidated by the culture. Stand up so that others will too. This is about God. It's not about man, and it is certainly not about any of us personally. It is about what God has said in His Word, what He has called sinful or righteous, and what He commands of His people. This is not about man's opinion concerning what is acceptable or unacceptable or even legal or illegal. You will not answer to the culture one day. You will answer to God. And we will all appear before Him to give an account of what we did or what we did not do in these bodies. That is fearful, but He is graceful. Trust Him as together we build and fight and see His kingdom come. His will be done in our community, even as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you.